Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. Sink into this as a way into the conversation that follows. In the world in which I was born, and maybe you too, the weather was the stuff of small talk. The seasons of the year were the underlay of planting and harvesting food that nourishes and fuels our bodies, of course. But seasons have also been the very mundane, predictable rhythm of our days and our lives. Now, the loss of seasons as we knew them, the loss of storms as we knew to navigate them, is an experience we are all sharing in all the places we inhabit and love. This is closer to home than every fight we have about climate and the science around it, the meaning of it. We feel this in our bodies, the young among us most keenly. It leads some of us to those fights and some of us to retreat within, overwhelmed. My guest today is the exuberant and mighty Costa Rican diplomat, Christiana Figueres. She, as much as anyone alive on the planet right now, has felt that overwhelm and stepped into service. She is a most eloquent articulator, both of the grief that we feel and must allow to bind us to each other, and what she sees as a spiritual evolution the natural world is calling us to. If you have wondered how to keep hope alive amidst a thousand reasons to despair, if you are ready to take your despair as fuel, intrigued by the idea of stepping into love as a way to stepping into service, and open to immediate realities of abundance and regeneration, this conversation is for you. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Christiana Figueres was Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016 and is known as the powerhouse who made the 2015 Paris Agreement possible, in which 195 nations worked with their wildly diverse conditions and points of view on the what and the when and the why, and yet made commitments in service of our hurting planet and the future of humanity. She spoke to me from her home in Costa Rica. Hello there. Can you hear me? Hi. I can hear you. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be yeah. talking to you. <laughs> um, so, Zach, are we, and Bill, are we good to start whenever we're ready? Okay. Well, Christiana, you know, I've known your name for such a long time. I followed your work for such a long time, and uh, it's just such a, it's such a pleasure and really an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. So thank you. No, no, no. Let's correct this. Let's correct (laughs) the facts here, Krista, okay? (laughs) I have known about you. I have been following your uh, On Being podcast plus many other things that you're Mm. doing for such a long time. Um, And it truly is humbling. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, here we are. And that's all you get to say about me. And now we're talking about you for the rest of the time. Okay. <laughs> but it means a lot. I'm not sure that I can obey that rule, but uh, <laughs> okay. you, you can try. <laughs> all right. But it means a lot. Um, and, you know, you have um, 
such an interesting personal history. And I, I know that I, all of our personal histories come with drama, and I'm sure an interesting personal history comes with even more drama. But um, that your father, your father, was also someone who's known as the father of modern Costa Rica, and that you grew up partly in the president's residence and at times and, and partly on on your father's farm, on your family farm. Um, your mother was a Danish immigrant uh, and at one point Costa Rican ambassador to Israel. And your father's also been described as a farmer philosopher. I mean, what a what a family to be born into and also what an incredible place to be born into, Costa Rica. Yes, well, you're, you're right. What, what a family lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no pressure, right? You can imagine mm, yeah. we grew up with absolutely no pressure <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, to live up to our parents' expectation of, uh, of always being in service. And that's definitely what they uh, passed along to us in our DNA is to always be in service of others. And I'm quite humbled, actually, and, and thankful, especially to my father's teachings that are mm so deep and, as you say, formed uh, the Costa Rica that we enjoy today, a country that has no army, thanks to the vision of my father, um, a country that has 5% of global biodiversity, despite the fact that we're absolutely tiny postage size. Mm, uh, I had no idea. Also. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Because my father, when he decided in 1948 to disband his own revolutionary army, that he formed in order to protect democracy. Um, And then he disbanded the national army and his logic was, why do we even have an official army? Let's take that budget and put it into what really counts. And so he put Mm. it into public education and protection of nature. Uh, That that was in 1948. So a total, total um, visionary. And uh, yeah, so you can imagine that growing up under the shadow and under the light, both, right? Mm-hmm. Under the shadow of of such a powerful um, pair of parents, but also under the light of their expectation and their ambition that they had already substantially realized, and their expectations for their kids. Yeah. So, yeah, not not an easy upbringing, I no. would say. Not, no, we didn't spend too much time in the playground. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Well, and then I'm very intrigued because I'm always interested in the spiritual background of a childhood, what, whatever, however that is defined. And I'm also quite intrigued that there's this figure in your life of your maternal grandfather in a very Catholic country who was a Christian scientist. Um, yeah. And I wonder what that bequeathed to you. How how odd is that? Yes. So my maternal uh, lineage, my grandparents and my mother were Christian scientists. My grandfather in particular, very, very devout uh, Christian scientist. And, uh, you know, lived to the ripe old age of 105 without ever taking medicine, just, you know, on the power (laughs) of his positive thinking uh, all the time. I grew up as a Christian scientist until I was 16. Mm -hmm. And more or less, when I turned 16, I went like, wait, wait, wait. Okay, there is something really powerful about this Christian science practice, which is to recognize the power of thought. But the piece that I actually decided I cannot stay a Christian scientist is because 
my sense is that there was a lack of recognition of the part of reality that had to do with pain, that had to do with suffering, mm. that had to do with disease. And because there is such an emphasis on the power of positive thought in Christian science, there's also a de-emphasis, or in fact, a blind spot, I would say, to the power of everything that is on the other side of that mm. disease or any ill that we experience in our lives. And for me, I just needed something that brought both of those together because I thought, actually, I just feel more comfortable if I can have a conceptual structure that allows me to hold two realities on equal standing at the same time, even if simplistically they seem to cancel each other out. But I just need to hold them both. Yes. Yeah, so what I... What I also hear when you talk about those things you wanted to hold together, kind of the light and the darkness, right? The pain and the healing. You were really, even as a teenager, getting at you wanted to own the fullness of reality, which equally has those things in them. And it strikes me that that capacity of yours, that orientation of yours, becomes such a gift um, it becomes one of your gifts to the world, and in particular, one of your gifts to to this reckoning, this ecological reckoning, this, you know, I, I try not to overuse the word climate, which I probably, I think you probably understand, because it's not just about climate, right? I mean, climate is the thing we end up talking about, but it is the ecological reality that we've come to yes. at this the point. ecological crisis. The yes. ecological crisis, and it is our ecological present. And there are callings and reckonings to it. And I feel like, so it's just so, I just want to kind of note that, that I feel like that orientation is something you brought into this work that you could not possibly have known you would have done when you were a teenager. Um, And also something that strikes me about your early life is your childhood was also implicated in the life of a nation, right? Like you and your family in a way, belonged, as you said, you didn't get, you probably didn't get enough playground time, but you belonged to the wider world. And yet, your the story you tell of what turned you towards what I would say became your calling was your sense of loss of a small creature, <laughs> a species of frog. I mean, is that right? That that was a that was an yes. early kind of beckoning to this particular work you walked into. Would you tell that yes. story? Yes, ab- absolutely. And you know, I've since become aware of how this loss in my life has marked so many chapters in my life. But mm-hmm. but but that was perhaps the first one that really opened a completely different door for me. So I was a recent mother. I had just had my two children, which followed each other very quickly. Uh, and I, I wanted to imbue them with so much. And one of the things that I really, really wanted to, uh, to seed in them was the love of nature, the awe of nature, the, the thirst for being in nature. And I remembered that when I was much younger, because I followed my parents to every corner of the country on their political campaigns, I had um, gone to Monteverde, which is a a rainforest reserve in Costa Rica, and I had seen this tiny little golden uh, toad 
that was absolutely glorious. I mean, you just cannot believe that nature creates something as beautiful as this. And, you know, quite to my misery, I discovered that by that time, that species had gone extinct because it only existed in that one rainforest in the world. That was it. And I was I was heartbroken. I was horrified. Um, but I was also very intrigued. And, and that was my introduction to begin to ask scientists and begin to read myself into the topic of climate change. And, and, and ever since, since the 90s, I have devoted my life to, uh, to addressing climate change because, Krista, I, I am above all, I am a parent. I yeah. am a mother to my own children and mother to future generations. That's the way that I think about myself. Mm. And I thought, okay, if I, as a mother, have received from my parents a planet that had X number of species in it. And now I am turning over a planet diminished with less species to my two daughters. How can that be a responsible terms of reference of any mother or any parent? Mm. And I I think, um, you know, one thing I think about a lot in general with the great I want to use that language again, kind of the callings and reckonings of this this young century, is how what we're all standing before, the work we're standing before, is at one and the same time intimate and personal and civilizational and kind of at a species level. Um, yes. And one of the ways I look out at what we're facing with climate, with ecology— I see human beings individually and collectively acting as human beings do when we are afraid, right? Like mm. on, on some level, there it's that simple. And we know what those different patterns are. And you write about this, right? We fight, we deny, we get paralyzed. Um, and, you know, and something else that I'm really, I'm seeing now, I don't know where it fits in that paradigm, but I'm sure it's part of it, is we normalize, right? And I think this is something that our bodies and brains do, and I understand it. But just how quickly, just in these recent years, you know, we've lost, you know, I when I was growing up, when you were growing up, the weather was the was a matter of small talk, Right. And the weather and the seasons had a predictability that was a rhythm of our lives and how quickly that has shifted and and we just kind of, it's so interesting to me and a little bit terrifying how we so quickly move into accepting that there's fire season, right? But But what I want to also say about you is that you really bring into focus, and, and you do speak eloquently about all of that, and I want us to talk about that, but you also bring into focus the bigger picture that the old world that, you know, as you say, that you were born into is not the world that your children have inherited. It's not the world that our children collectively inherited. That, that the old world is passing and a new one is being born. And part of the job right now is to really step into name, step into, kind of claim that reality. And how painful that is, Krista. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How painful it is for everyone. But I would argue, especially for those who have been 
at the front lines of this for years and decades. Those who have been personally affected continue to be affected. Those in low-lying states, uh, those yeah. who you know really depend on their uh, on, on their planting and, and reaping to survive. It's actually a poly crisis that we're facing. Yeah. But a, as you mentioned before, it, it it just reaps fear. It just you know we, we just go into fear because and which is which is as, understandable, right? Which is which, which is, is reasonable. Totally understandable. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But the way we respond but, is not helping us. Yeah. No, and and you know the way we have responded as human beings for for since we developed as human beings as a species is we either when in the face of threat we either do go into flight or freeze yeah. or fight as you've yeah. said yeah. um and and how do we do it better right because flight or getting distracted the moment you turn on the news and you see you know more wildfires well then turn the channel so i can look at something else yeah. right and and so that's the flight piece that's let me get distracted from this so that i can think about something else or how many people, Krista, especially young people, are into burnout because yeah, they are yeah. so pained yeah. and they go into freeze mode because they can't act. They pull the covers over themselves because of the burnout, because of the fear and the pain and the grief and the yeah. loss that they cannot manage. And so they just go into burnout and they freeze. Or the others, you know, just to... to to uh, to bring the third in, those who fight, they go out there and they, you know, start blaming people um, for for things that, that are sometimes justified and sometimes not. And so the question for me is, how do we get out of this flight, freeze, fight yeah. triangle that we have developed as a species for thousands of years? How do we manage our emotions better? And how do we get to the point where we can choose to act out of being grounded in our emotions, which means understanding, embracing the pain, not looking away, definitely embracing the pain, the suffering that comes to us every single day, and at the same time, understanding that that pain and that fear and that grief is what I would call an alarm bell. It's an alarm bell to not sink into the bed covers again, but rather jump out of bed and generate the clarity of what needs to be done. And it is that grounding in our emotions that, again, puts those two things side by side. Yes, I am in deep pain. And yes, precisely because of that, I am committed to do everything within my sphere of influence. And what... What you're starting to point at when you speak in this way, you know, so I, as much as, I mean, I've, I've interviewed across these years just incredible people who are doing incredibly beautiful, deep work um, to heal, <laughs> heal, heal our planet, right, in different spheres. Mm. And, and as much as anyone I could interview, you know, you, you are a person who has stepped up, you've played your part on a global stage, you, you were critical to the Paris Accords, which remains the most significant agreement that we have made to date that has commitments and goals attached. Um, imperfect because everything human beings do is imperfect, but it's the best we've done so far. And what you just said to me about the critical, 
like elemental underlying work that we, each of us, and collectively have to do. That I feel like you've come to this point and you're talking about grounding in our emotions, but I, I, you're also talking about rising to this to this crisis, to this calling at a spiritual level, and, and that without that, you know, as good as the technological fixes may be that we can find, um, as important as all the action, this is still ground on which we will either flourish or falter. I mean, is that, is that too strong to say it that way? No, no, absolutely. Um, our spiritual evolution, I, I honestly think, Krista, that, you know, without diminishing the task of climate change to which I have devoted my whole professional life, without diminishing that and without diminishing the complexities of the energy transition and, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it from a little bit farther back, my sense is that climate change is the gym in which we as human beings are strengthening our muscle to be able to evolve to a much higher sense of awareness, consciousness, action than we were before. And and that the way that we understand that is measured in the way that we understand our relationship with nature. Once we get to the point where we really understand that it's not like we are extracting from nature, which is what we used to do, um, or even living with nature, which is what most of us are trying to do um, now. But no, we have to get to the point where we are living as nature. Right, which because we always were, right? We were of Which nature, we always in were. It. We were exactly. we were wilderness before we decided we were civilization. Yeah, <laughs> in our infinite wisdom, right? Yeah. We divorced nature from ourselves. Yeah. I mean, how wise was that? Yeah. So, it's interesting that we're coming full circle yes. as we evolve. So, it's not a circle, it's a spiral right? Because we're coming around Mm -hmm. to be again part of nature as we always were, but from a much higher understanding, which was not lost, by the way, by most of the indigenous cultures of the world. That consciousness has existed, but it wasn't... Has existed. Yeah. But it has not been the predominant mindset. Right. Um, and, And we are hopefully getting back to that. I'd like for you to also talk about how you started to think in this way, because you know, my understanding is that actually while you were in that process of building towards the Paris Accords in the, I don't know, 2013, 2014, 2015, you're overseeing 500 people, you're working with 195 nations, you fell into a deep despair. And it was out of that despair that that is new kind of spiritual inquiry, um, and perhaps you might even say personally a spiritual evolution began for you. Yes, that was, I, I would say, my second huge loss in life. I had been married for 25 years. I 
actually thought I was in what I would call picture book marriage, picture book family, uh, you know, doing everything to give the family and my daughter is the, the strongest underpinning for, for their life in terms of values and principles. And then one day I was completely surprised by an announcement on the part of my former husband um, that uh, just completely destroyed the marriage. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, I just felt like, whoa, you know, I'm, I've been hit here by a, a two by four uh, that I absolutely did not, uh, did not expect. And as you say, my day job was to continue to lead the negotiations toward the Paris Agreement. So uh, it was a, it was a pretty difficult um, situation. I didn't want to let my colleagues know that I was in this terrible traumatic situation. Um, I didn't take one day off from work. I cried mm-hmm. myself to sleep for a whole year. And mm-hmm. then I go wake, woke up the next morning, had a shower, put my smile on my face and went to work because mm-hmm. uh, I had told all my colleagues, we have to work with love and with, uh, and with joy if we're going to get anywhere. Um, and so I was living two realities, right? One at night and one during the day. And after a while, Krista just became completely unmanageable. And I, I, well, I have... I have said before publicly, so I don't have any need to hide it. I started having suicidal thoughts um, because I just couldn't manage this this contrast between me at work and me at home or me with my professional colleagues and me with myself. Um, It was just too, too painful, too difficult. And it was in that desperation that the universe led me to Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese Zen master, I I was living in Germany. I went without knowing anything about Buddhism or anything about the place that I was going, just guided by the universe. Uh, I went to the monastery that was close to my home and started uh, a study that has lasted over the next 10 years up until now. And I have become very active in that community, in the Plum Village tradition because A, it helped me so very, very much to understand my pain and to ground it much better, not to walk away from it or deny it, but also not to um, to be controlled by it, but rather it helped me to be able to regain sovereignty mm-hmm. over my personal circumstance. And then I discovered oh my gosh, it is so helpful for my professional life because, you know, the truths that I was learning applied to me as an individual, but also applied to everyone else collectively and above all, applies to all levels of the system. And I honestly think that if I had not had that guidance and those teachings, I, I don't know how we would ever have gotten the Paris Agreement because it was just so fundamental. Yeah, and... As I think you know, I interviewed Thich Nhat Hanh, Thai, in yes. 2003 or 2005, so early in this adventure, and it's meant so much, right? It was indelible. And, uh, and I mean, so when I read you writing about or speaking about being what you learned at Plum Village, and you're just saying that now, that there was so much that, in fact, had incredible pragmatic value. <laughs> um, I'd mm. love to just tease out some of those ingredients. I mean, one of them, I think, that I have seen you talking about is, you know, that, again, went into your work as a diplomat and a global negotiator, um, 
things like deep listening. Deep listening, yeah. And and I think that this deep listening, as you learned it at Plum Village, and in this particular Vietnamese and Buddhist lineage, is so connected to quality qualities of presence and and a quality mm-hmm. of silence. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I'd, I'd love for you to get more granular about it, you know what these these well, you're, spiritual you're, practices yeah. that you brought into your into your diplomatic work well you're you're right Krista. It, it really is about the quality of presence because mm-hmm. i i think it's um perhaps too simplistic to say but let me say it anyway that anything can be mundane any any experience any interaction anything can be mundane yeah and anything can be spiritual the very same interaction, the very same experience can be either mundane or spiritual. The only difference between the two is how I live it. What quality of presence do I bring to it? Mm-hmm. And that is true about our experiences. It is also very true about our mindset, mm-hmm. about our narrative. And our action. And to understand that mindsets lead to narratives, lead to action. And above all, that every single action of ours carries our signature. And that is true for a conversation. It's true for an interaction. Whichever way, you know, I interact with, I don't know, with my neighbor, with my daughters, with um, the person where I, you know, go and and buy my vegetables. That conversation, the way that I walk in to that place where I go and buy my vegetables. If I just go like, okay, I have to buy two tomatoes, one onion, you know, and three avocados. That's one way of walking in. The other way of walking in is to pause, take a breath and go, wow, this little shop is run by four sisters who inherited this little shop from their father. Mm. And their father had this immense, beautiful ambition that the four of them would do this together. And every single tomato, every single onion in here is an expression of their love for their father Hmm. and their collaboration among the four siblings. (laughs) Now I'm having a completely different experience about the tomato. (laughs) Right. Right? And this this really leads into just a fundamental conviction you have that I also think is is there in that in that spiritual worldview of Plum Village and in the great traditions that and you said it's a, with our thoughts we create the world. Maybe that's a way Ty yes. said it. Um, yes. Interestingly, I heard you say something very similar about your Christian Science grandfather. Right, that there's this this yes. powerful belief in thoughts in a way that science is now validating. But yes, and and that this this belief this. This understanding of the power of, you know, what you just illustrated, it's not just our thoughts, and that becomes our very presence, and that that becomes transformative for us and for other people. And you also hold this up as that changing the story that we're telling ourselves of this ecological climate reality, this new world we are already in, is absolutely has to be such an important focus um, of our energy and our our imagination and our creativity and our work and you know I saw this 
I saw you being interviewed by The Guardian about your book, which is wonderful, that you wrote with Tom Rivett Carnot called The Future We Choose. And, <laughs> and I feel like these questions themselves really illustrate that we're up against something in saying that changing the story can matter, right? So somebody said, uh, the journalist said, um, only 11 pages or so of the book describe the terrible consequences of unchecked climate change, while the rest talks about the possibility of a much better world. Why? (laughs) And then there's another question. A lot of the book is about the need for a shift in people's consciousness. And then here's the question, and this is the bias of modernity, right? Isn't this rather grandiose, or on the other hand, too vague (laughs) to make a difference in the real world? I want to say that I love The Guardian, but I I think that this person is representing something larger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I just find that very sweet, right? Because I think that the the journalist was really trying to give voice to um, to the readers, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Are the readers are the readers ready for this? Um, and so I I just really appreciate that intention. But but yes, the answer to the question is wow. You know, once we wake up to the fact that it is our thought that determines our word and our word that determines our action, or the other way of thinking about it is our mindset when you think about it collectively. What is the predominant mindset now? It's about, we are so doomed. We are, you know, there's no way we're going to get out of this mess. We are way too late. Uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much it pains me, Krista, to hear that there are many young people who think of themselves as being the last generation, the last generation on this planet. I mean, that mindset, right? It's, wow, it is so, so, so dug into pain and grief and loss. And it just, it gives me the same pain and grief just to listen to that. We do have to change that mindset, not denying the reality of the fact that we're way late and that we're going over tipping points and all the science in which we're deeply steeped, but also to realize that precisely because of all of that, that's why we have to change our mindset to a mindset of hope, a mindset, or and I, I say hope not flippantly, a mindset of conviction that we have everything that we need to make a difference in a timely fashion. And with that mindset shift, then we can change the narrative and we can look for all of the evidences, of which there are many, but the media doesn't carry it, that we are changing the um, the energy profile of the world. We are, you know, so many of these technologies are on on exponential growth curves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And with that, then the public and leaders go like, oh, okay, Hmm. well then maybe we do have a chance. So therefore let's double down on our action. So mindset shift, narrative change, and then ground that into action. And that chronology is really, really important. But it starts with the mindset shift. It starts with what are we thinking? And yeah, and right? you, because yeah, yeah, go on, go on. Well, I was just saying, no, you, I was, ju- I was just going to yeah, say, go on, <laughs> you go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just going to um, finish by saying those of us who work on climate know that 2030 is a very important deadline that yeah. we're in the decisive decade of the twenties. Yeah. And so whether we're able to half emissions from where we are right now, to the end of the decade really determines the quality of life on this planet for 
generations to come. But in my book, the way we meet the 2030 deadline is just as important as meeting it itself. Hmm. Honestly, meeting the 2030 deadline without the deeper understanding is like walking into that vegetable store and just buying your tomatoes and your and your onions. <laughs> okay. It's not just about meeting the 2030. It's how we meet it. Okay. Well, I want to I want to talk about the mindset shift, but also I just first want to note you note subtleties of the way we think about this that was helpful for me to just get aware of, right? So even if the question that it gets asked or what we're focusing on is how expensive will it be, right? You know, is it too too expensive too late? Or, you know, that that skews where the entire imagination goes and sidelines other important questions that will be animating in a different way. But even also something I know we're so aware of is this the dystopian vision, right? The dystopian mm. novel, the dystopian yeah. movie. And look, those make for great stories and they can make for great movies. But you say like this kind of doom is dangerous. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's how powerful our imaginations are. Exactly. Exactly. That is how powerful our mindset is. Mm-hmm. And that then predetermines what our actions are going to be or what they're not going to be. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying before, Krista, you know, neurolinguistics is really now the scientific um, proof of, of that. Um, that actually whatever we think and say becomes the reality that we create out there. Mm-hmm. And and, and how wonderful, right? How wonderful that now we don't have to assume that there is this ridiculous barrier between spirituality and physical reality. How wonderful that we can understand that those two are actually in constant interaction with each other. What we think, what we feel, what we say is in constant interaction with what we are co-creating out there. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it took us a long time to get scientific proof, but now we have. Yeah, and, and this, this notion of actively orienting our intentionality, our choice and practice, like this, this runs all the way through um, your, your work and your, your thinking now. And you have... Um, you had a wonderful conversation with Roshi Joan Halifax and Rebecca Solnit, and you talked about yes. hope. And I think this maybe came from something Gorgeous Rebecca women. did. Yeah, hope is a verb with a verb with the sleeves rolled up. I often talk about yeah, mus- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I talk- uh, you know, I thought I thought that was Rebecca's, but she told me no, she it's told me not somebody hers. else's. Yeah, I talk about <laughs> muscular hope, but what we're talking about is there. Not, you go. We're not like talking about one. wishful thinking. We're talking about no. about deciding that it doesn't have to be this way and throwing your life behind it. So a couple of the other the mindset um, shifts that you mentioned that I just want to talk about because I think they could sound paradoxical to people. One of them is endless abundance. <laughs> yeah, endless abundance. Um, you know, we are so programmed to think in scarcity terms mm-hmm. and in competition terms. And one of the historical roots of that Um, is the unfortunate um, interpretation 
of the survival of the fittest by Darwin. And, and that's why you go into the zero-sum game, you know, that if there's a scarcity, then either you win and I lose or I win and you lose. And so many ramifications of that. But that's not what Darwin said. He said the survival of the fit. And what he meant by that was the survival of those species who are fit to the environment in which they're living because the environment is constantly changing. Impermanence, another really helpful concept. Um, So because we have impermanence, the species are constantly adapting and those that constantly adapt to those circumstances are more fit to those changing circumstances and have higher resilience. Well, that's a very different concept than scarcity. And the... Abundance actually is our natural state of being when we really understand what our roots of being and acting are. Let me put it into energy terms okay. just, you know, to get out, yeah. to get out of the woo-woo land. Okay? Yeah, yeah. The, the fact is, Krista, that we are on an incredible exponential curve to increase our renewables, we can uh, get by 2030, which is the deadline that we all have in front of us, we can triple the energy capacity that we have right now from all of the renewables um, that we have. In fact, if you only take like the new renewables without counting geothermal and water and, you know, those, if you only take the newer renewables, wind power and solar power, We're currently at 12% of all electricity in the world is already produced by wind and solar, okay? And those are the new ones. Mm -hmm. And we're on track that by 2030, which is scarcely seven years from now, we will be at 40% of all electricity being wind and solar only. To that, you can add all of the other renewables. So it's a question of understanding that this is entirely possible. It's possible from a technological point of view. It's possible from a resource point of view because there is no limit. Get out of our scarcity mindset. There is no limit to the wind and the sun. So let's, you know, let's let go of the anchors, the mental anchors that we have that belong in the 20th century. I say, let's be thankful to the oil and gas industry that powered at least half of the world and gave creature comforts to half of the world in the past century. Thank you for that. And my dear oil and gas industry, you are now facing your expiration date because we no longer need you. We now have much better technologies that can actually power the whole world and not just half of the world. So, mm. and, and we will very soon, Krista, be in a world of ubiquitous energy, cheap energy, accessible energy, clean energy. We will have more energy than we can possibly consume. Okay, so there, more there is endless abundance. All right, I see it. Endless <laughs> abundance. I see it. I see the mindset shift. Um, and you're not asking. Okay, and you're cool. not And you're not asking people to believe in things that don't exist, right? But it, it, but it is no. such a pivot, an imaginative as well as a practical pivot. And then the other phrase that you use is in terms of mindset to apply to this not just the future, but right, this new world we are now living in is radical regeneration. So talk about that. 
Well, radical regeneration, let's talk at the individual level, Krista. Let's okay. start there, okay. right? Um, so with with all of these fantastic people who are into doom, despair, grief, loss, I mean, honestly, what what we're trying to do with one of our efforts here is to invite all of these wonderful people to find a place of regeneration for themselves because mm-hmm. there's no way that they can go out and be the agents of change that everyone needs to be if they're actually in total despair themselves. So number one, let's regenerate ourselves and let's become much more resilient at the individual level, at the corporate level, etc. But think about nature also. We have destroyed nature. We have depleted nature. Right. And so our our task now is not just to save the bit of nature that we have, save this, the old standing forest that we have, not just to save the few corals that are left, but actually to intentionally regenerate, regenerate the soil, regenerate the coral reefs, regenerate the forest, regenerate and allow nature with our help to get back to the resilience that she used to have. Because frankly, it's in our own interest that she have that resilience. So radical regeneration goes, you know, all the way. And I've just used the, the two extremes there, Krista, for the individuals and then for the planetary system, but Mm -hmm. it applies all the way across the spectrum. And those different levels of transformation, I think I hear you saying, must go hand in hand. They have to go hand in hand. Systemic transformation, personal transformation, we we don't get one without the other? No, we say systemic transformation is deeply personal. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. On the Templeton Ideas podcast, they dive deep into conversations with astrophysicists, psychologists, and philosophers, exploring the most awe-inspiring ideas in our world. Learn more at templeton.org. to talk some more about, you know, the new generations, because this is also something very much on your heart, and you're in, you're in a relationship and a dialogue with, with this very understandable despair and grief um, that I think younger people really feel in their bodies more consciously, perhaps, mm. than older people. Mm. Um, but one of the things, I, one of the moves I see them making is claiming joy, and claiming, you know, an abundance of of relationship and community, you know, where it is to be found, and insisting on knowing what they love and on being attentive to beauty wherever it is to be found. Also, and I want to use this word, as fuel, right? As fuel yes. for the hard, hard work that is ours to do. 
Yes, so true, so true. That um, intentional cultivating of a mind of love and joy is so critical to our personal resilience, to our personal regeneration, to our personal agency, to our capacity to engage. It's just a sine qua non, right? Mm -hmm. Without it, there is no capacity to engage in a positive manner, in a constructive manner, in a transformational manner uh, with anything outside ourselves. It it just isn't. And uh, so the, the more young and not so young people realize that, yes, we are at a very deeply painful moment in the history of this planet and of human evolution, and that we can either succumb to that or we can use that, as you say, as fuel. We can use that to intentionally decide that we're going to stand up using the depth of the pain to root us so that we're not, you know, swayed by the wind. Hmm. Use it to root us in our determination to do everything for a better world, not just for us, but for generations to come, Krista. And and that's the piece, you know, that I don't think that we have very clear yet. Whatever we are doing over the next seven years, and this is no Latin American exaggeration, Whatever we do over the next seven years is really going to determine the quality of life on this planet mm-hmm. for generations to come. Hence, the alarm clock. Yeah, This is an alarm clock. It's an alarm clock about speed and scale, but it's also an alarm clock about quality of mind. Mm-hmm. As you say, cultivating the mind of love and joy. Mm-hmm. And that that our love, that our love for this planet and for the beauty that's around us and the places we come from, that that is as much a motivator as as what we have to fight. You know, I watched you at an, an event at TED in Scotland. And um, <laughs> I wish we could spend about an hour talking about that, and we can't. But, <laughs> but it was... Um, it was very moving. You ended up kind of very expertly leading a panel on which there was um, the CEO of Shell Oil and, and then a young woman who was so um, who was uh, carrying her pain, right? And letting yeah. that pain into the room and also expressing um, her difficulty at being on a panel with the CEO of Shell. And her anger is what I would say. Anger and <laughs> yeah. her intolerance of yep. of that we are at this point, um, and and the, and with the participation of of powerful powerful places, um, and I and I will say also that I could see this CEO really being present and thinking and and wanting to to be responsive. Yes. And, but what I watched you do, and I'm I'm kind of. I'm driving to this because I, I I think you can do this also for everybody who's going to be listening to this, you know, across time and space, is is and I felt like you yourself had been on this trajectory of understanding that this was something you needed to invoke is just inviting everyone on that panel and everyone in that room to stand before the loss and the grief. And let that pain itself be some of the connective tissue 
across these differences. Mm. If nothing else, that we share. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so just just for correctness, it's the former CEO of Shell because okay. he is no longer no longer CEO. Okay. But 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 the case still stands, right? Mm-hmm. The more radical conversation, if you will, was the one between, as you say, the the former Shell CEO mm-hmm. and the young activist who spoke and acted out of deep pain, mm-hmm. anger, blaming, all, all of which is completely justified, mm-hmm. all of which, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, almost literally threw herself off the stage onto the shoulders of her colleagues that were waiting for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite a dramatic moment. It was quite a traumatic moment mm-hmm. because there we were with the pain and the trauma of years right on stage in front of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I did not want to occur was for the audience to divide itself up in right. which of these two points of view am I going to support? Right. Am I going to support the Shell CEO because we have a whole bunch of corporates in the room who think that X, Y, Z? Or am I going to support the very eloquent climate activist uh, because Shell is, has to be blamed and, uh, and shamed? So what I did not want is for the audience to fall into that simplistic division between what they, you know, all of us think is what is right and what is wrong. And I wanted to keep everyone in their own pain because we all have the pain. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us, you know, no, no matter what, we have this pain because we are aware of the loss yeah. that we are witnessing. So I did call for everyone to take a moment, breathe, and get into the pain and avoid the immediate blame mm-hmm. and shame because that is where we would have gone very quickly. Now, fast forward, Krista. How moving was it for me that just a few weeks ago, we held a retreat in Plum Village in France for climate activists and climate leaders who seek to find better ways to manage their emotions and to be grounded in their emotions so that they can act from a deeper sense without having to just react, right? right? So get away from the fight, flight, freeze to much more of a grounded, clean action. How moving for me was it that that very climate activist who threw herself off of stage came to that retreat oh. with most of those young people who were waiting for her there and held her and then they marched out, most of them came to this retreat. Hmm. How moving was that for me? And the fact that after six days of really intensive study of the, of, uh, of, of the Dharma teachings, but more than anything, intensive digging in into self and into the pain and learning how to turn the pain into strength, how moving was it for me that these young people emerged transformed, recommitted to continue to working on climate change from a space of possibility and love and joy. Honestly, I long time since I have felt so much gratitude 
for the power of these teachings. Hmm. You know, I um, I sense that. So, so there's that, and also I hear you saying in in your writing and in your speaking. Do not give up on people. Do not give up on, you know, this language even of climate denier, right? Is a that's a label and that's a that's a drama in our midst. But to me, it's just another side of, you know, again, we all feel the disarray and the disrepair of our natural world, of which we are part mm. in our bodies. And mm. whether that's at the level of awareness or not, we have different ways of responding to that same fear. Um, and you say, don't give up on climate deniers. Again, I hate I hate the label. Um, I feel like the people you're really impatient with are um, people who are making a choice to, to be indifferent. Indifferent, yes. So true. That That's the piece that I really, whew, I really have to extend my compassion to, you know, to extent that I'm not quite there yet. Um, <laughs> To people who are indifferent. How can you be indifferent? How can you be indifferent to everything that we're witnessing today? And especially because, you know, the consequences of today on tomorrow. How can you stand in indifference? That's the piece that I I have a, yes, you have identified that very well. I have a very hard time. Well, and and this can be subtle as well, right? Because it can be, and I am going to say I fall into this too, is it can be, well, it's just all over anyway, right? Like, I mean, just there's news as we're speaking and this same news will recur that the ice melting in the Antarctica is much is happening at a much more rapid pace than than was once thought. And so what we're calling indifference can can just be a, a resignation which which feels itself to care, but can't care anymore. Um, so it's it's complex, right? It's as complex as we are. Well, is it? Is it? I mean, we we just talked a little while ago about self fulfilling prophecies, right? Yeah. So yeah. if we say it's all over anyway, and we really stand in that quote unquote reality, then we actually will create that reality. Mm-hmm. Then it will be over anyway, mm-hmm. and that's the choice. That's the piece, Krista. This is a choice. It's a choice of attitude. It's a choice of mindset. It's a choice of thought. It's a choice of of words and narratives and actions. It's a choice. It's a daily choice. So yes, of course, the easy thing is to go like, well, you know, it's too late anyway. Bye. Yeah. Hello? Really? <laughs> hmm. Is that the way? You know, I mean, I mean for those people who take that, I just hmm. I just wonder how are they going to answer their grandchildren's questions? Mm-hmm. What did you do? All our grandchildren will be asking us, what did you do? Mm-hmm. And everyone is going to have to answer that question. What did you do? Because nobody can say I didn't know. Nobody can say that anymore. Not, my not parents anymore. could say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, my generation, cannot say that anymore. Yeah. So the question that we have to get ready for, and that is already being asked by many young people to their parents, is what did you do? do. Mm-hmm. You know, you said at one point um, that it is the nature of evolution, uh, that it is the nature of this world, the way it works, that creatures are constantly adapting, that the environment is constantly evolving, that we, as well as other other creatures, are constantly adapting to the environment. And that is the nature of vitality and the conditions of our time. 
um, you use this language of exponential curves, right? Like our world is on so many exponential curves. Um, the natural world is on so many exponential curves. As you say also, the possibilities for very new realities are also on exponential curves, but that's ongoing. Mm. It's not realized wherever it's not visible. It's not the dominant story yet. Um, and, Correct. And it is hard. It is hard for us as creatures to live with this kind of uncertainty. It's very challenging at a at a physiological as well as a spiritual level. Um, mm. And but I don't know. I guess I'm kind of ending up circling back to where we started. You know, in in your book, the future we choose. You have you have ten. Are they actions? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And the first one, it's a thought action, right? It is let go of the old world, which sounds so massive, right? But I think, I don't know, I guess I want you to talk about how that is a beginning and, and how that can be a beginning, a mm. step, a step, an action in and of itself. Yeah, let let go of the old world is actually, I mean, now that I think about it a little bit more, it's almost like a funny invitation because the old world is gone anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, what's the point of hanging on to something that has already gone by? Um, but that's what we do. You know, the, that's what we do. But right? that's what we do. Yeah. I know, but, you know, we have to laugh at ourselves that we do that, Krista, right? Because <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense. And, mm -hmm. and when we understand that everything is in constant change, when we understand that we have, if, if, if there is anything that is certain, it's uncertainty. If there's anything that is permanent, it is the reality of impermanence. But we structure Everything in our, our lives to be in denial and to push that back, right? Yes. We feel like yes. that's yes. our power. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, how mm -hmm. funny is that? You have mm -hmm. to see that with a, you know, with a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, the fact that we know that everything is in constant change. I mean, we, you and I are not the same people that when we started this conversation. I certainly was not the same person than yesterday, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, our relationships change. Everything changes all the time. Uh, the world is changing all the time. And so we're in constant flux and constant uncertainty. We, you know, the, the past is past. We can't do anything about it. The future, we cannot really guarantee. We can try to influence it for the best um, and for good, but we can't really control it. So I think there's a heavy dose of humility here to understand that the past is gone. The future is uncontrollable. We don't know where things will go. We have to be able to develop that muscle that you were talking about. The, what would you call it? Muscular. Muscular hope. Yeah. Muscular hope. Well, in this case, it's, you know, the, the muscular capacity to understand that we're in constant sway, in constant uncertainty, mm -hmm. and have the humility to truly, deeply, deeply know we don't know how it will go. We have all kinds of scientific, you know, projections and predictions, and that's science. But let's not confuse the map with the territory. That's the map. Mm. We don't really know what the territory is, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know how, for sure, for certain, we don't know how it will go. Because for one thing, it'll depend a lot on what we do. Yeah. But in the meantime, the question that is most important for me is 
how do I want to be in the meantime? How do I want to turn up in the world in the meantime? During the time that I'm here, which is a blink in the history of 4.5 billion years of this planet. We're here as a blink. What kind of a blink do we want to be? Hmm. Who do I want to be? How do I want to turn up in the world? The answer to that question does not guarantee any success or any achievement, but it does influence the direction that we move in. another question that I've seen you ask that feels helpful to me Um, because I I think you know using using words in a slightly new way asking a question in a slightly new way can just be a spark to our imagination so this question Mm. you've asked is what is it that we bring to bear what is it that I bring Mm. to bear is an interesting question to walk around with in this context of this world in which even the weather, right, which which everything yeah. about the ground we stand on and the air we breathe is in a terrible flux. It is in a terrible flux. And, you know, what, what do I bring to bear um, is a question 24 hours a day, right? Yeah. What do I bring to bear to my conversation with you, to mm-hmm. my, you know, the way that I greet my little vegetable ladies? It's anything that we do. Any conversation that we have, with especially with younger people, what role modeling are we having for young people? Because they're looking at us. Mm-hmm. They are definitely looking at us. So mm-hmm. how do I want to be in that conversation? Who do I want to be? What is my full presence? What is the highest interpretation of myself that I can bring to any circumstance? Mm. I've heard you use... This phrase that I, ever since I heard you use that I've just been walking around with it and I'm so intrigued by it. And that is that this transformation, if, if we are to flourish rather than merely survive, mm. that, that we need, this world needs spiritual infrastructure as yeah. well as the other kinds of infrastructure with which we've known to build. Would you just say some more about what is connoted in that for you? And do you see that spiritual infrastructure emerging from where you sit? You know, I do see that spiritual infrastructure emerging and strengthening and building itself, or we are building it. Mm -hmm. I see it constantly emerging. I see so many young people who are asking that same question. Who am I? What am I capable of? What is my role while I'm here? How do I react to the threat? How do I react to the pain, to the grief that I'm carrying? How do I contribute to a much broader scaffolding that has to go beyond myself? Mm-hmm. The scaffolding, the spiritual infrastructure that we have to build is, yes, at a personal level, for sure, that's where it starts. But it goes way beyond that because mm-hmm. it's not about what in one individual is going to be able to do. 
hold on, I have to close the door because of course they've decided now to cut the grass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, the real world breaking into our conversation appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Appropriately. Yeah. Um, yeah, so how mm-hmm. it, it is about the recognition, Krista, of um, collective impact, collective wisdom, mm-hmm. collective leadership. That's mm-hmm. how we build the spiritual infrastructure because we sow the seed individually, but germinating the seed and being able to grow it so that we can harvest from it requires a collective effort. And and I think also spiritual language for that, which you also use, would be for the same thing, but which again kind of orients us in a different way, is accompaniment, right? Or or that notion mm. of presence, like bringing presence, the, a quality of presence to walking alongside and working with um, others. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and you know, and getting away from this individualistic thing. I mean, mm. you, the the num the number of I don't know myths that we have convinced ourselves of. You know, scarcity being one, yeah. individualism being another, extractivism. Yeah. But at this point, individualism. When did we come up with that? Yeah. Uh, how, you know, how, how helpful has that been? Yeah. Well, and my my body and yours have, have more microbial cells in them than, than human cells, right? So even exactly. physiologically, we're not individuals. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So why, you know, this myth, yeah. this myth that we have been cultivating, yeah. so unhelpful. Yeah. And you've pointed out that. We're in this astonishing moment where science is is exploding that myth, and um, and it's knowledge that was always in our spiritual traditions and in and in ancient indigenous traditions, and it's it's just becoming ununseeable. I mean, I think I want to end with. Um, Can I just say something yes, about yes, that? Because yes. Hon- honestly, I am so excited about being alive right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have to tell you, Krista. I mean. <laughs> Here is the amazing, amazing thing, right? Okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the list is long, but I will, I will try to keep it short. We have most, if not all, of the technologies that we're going to need for this transformation. We have the capital, collectively, we have the capital. We know what the policies are. We, um, science is confirming to us that this is, yes, about technology, capital, um, and policy, but that it is also about how we think about ourselves and our impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And we are at a moment in time in which electrification meets AI, meets digitalization, meets, you know, globalization, both global and local. And all of this put together, I mean, if you put all of this in a pot and stir it around, This is like the most magical potion you can possibly ever have dreamt of. (laughs) And it is leading to change that is beyond anything that we could possibly, possibly imagine. So I am so excited about being alive right now. Right? Like you are able to see you are able to see some of that being realized that the rest of us don't have visibility to. Yeah. Oh, well, but, 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 wait, 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 no, no, I won't take that. I won't take that as a fact. <laughs> it's, it's not that we're not able to, 
It's choice that we make in what information we let in. Okay. If we go out there into the world and we say, right, I am going to let in positive, you know, proof points Mm -hmm. of exponential change, you will see them. So I am not going to take it as a fact that people cannot see this change. It is about our internal attitude and how we show up in the world, what information we let in, and then we can all see this change. And honestly, don't we all want to be part of that change? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Oh, we're so strange, aren't we? Um, We're actually hilarious. I just think it's so We are hilarious. I, you know, something I'm thinking about a lot right now, and this is also just gets at our strangeness, and it's very bittersweet, is... um, Everything feels so precious to me now, right? In a new way, right? Mm. Like when, yes. right? This when I have a passionate experience of beauty in the natural world, or a beautiful weather day, right? Um, yes. Or even just the feeling of kinship with other people, it it all feels so precious because it's endangered, right? That's also a way way we roll, and I'm wanting to be conscious of that and. I listened to you also have a conversation that feels connected to this to me with with Rebecca Solnit and, and Roshi Joan Halifax about, you know, something Rebecca's written a lot about and talked about on this show is, you know, there is this thing that happens when the worst happens that the best of human nature also rises up, right? Mm. We find our capacity to care wildly in those moments of um, disaster and catastrophe. And so that's this thing that happens in in an acute emergency. This is your language. And I think if we kind of come back to where we started here about, you know, your vision that not just what could happen now, but what in fact this climate, this ecological rupture may be calling us to, may enable us to, is another phase of human evolution, an evolution of spirit and consciousness. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about Dorothy Day, 1906, watching in the middle of the San Francisco earthquake, Rebecca writes about this too, like watching, or she's nine, six, nine, watching people coming across the bay who've lost everything and seeing all the adults around her, knowing exactly what to do to step in and be of service. And to care for strangers and to just expand, instantaneously expand that web of human relationship and care. And the question she asked was, why can't we live this way all the time? Yes, exactly. And and I right, and I feel like you asked this question in this um in this context, you know, and I wrote this down. You said, How do we nourish a deep well of yearning to be with each other and to be helpful to each other? In the absence of an acute emergency, where what we have is a chronic emergency, Mm. we have a new reality that is going to unfold ahead of us as long as we can see. Um, Maybe that's a good way for us, place for us to end, for you to just reflect on how you, how you imagine that, what that, what that means to you, you know, that question. Well... I don't have the answer to that question. Um, It's an inquiry that I take with me everywhere. And it's an inquiry as Rebecca, you know, has many examples, but we all share the example of the pandemic, don't we? Yes. Where we saw just so many, uh, so many examples of caring and compassion and 
and support for strangers in so many ways that might have been unthinkable without the pandemic. So we are, as human beings, we are entirely capable of it, as we say there, in the face of an acute emergency. Yeah. Now, how do we expand that? So it's not, it's not about creating something that is not there. Right. It's about watering a seed that is already in our fertile ground and watering it to the extent that it can carry over longer periods of time and geography so that we can feel the responsibility toward future generations and we can feel responsibility toward people in other corners of the planet. And so the, the beginning of an answer, but it's, it's not the full answer yet, um, Krista, is it's the watering of that seed. Mm. It is an intentional watering that we have to do every day, mm-hmm. that we have to choose to do every day because that seed bloomed and gave fruit during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was fantastic. But the seed is still there. So mm-hmm. can we intentionally water it? That is the best of humanity. Those actions, that compassion, mm-hmm. that solidarity, mm-hmm. that helping each other, mm-hmm. that responsibility intergenerationally, that is the best of humanity. Yeah. Can we continue to water that seed so that we build our muscular capacity to do so over space and time Mm -hmm. because we're not there yet, but can we do it? Mm -hmm. I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the moments when we look at ourselves and others, including strangers, and we think how beautiful we are as a species, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, so beautiful. Christiana Figueres is the former executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and she led the process that secured the 2015 Paris Agreement. Her book, written together with Tom Rivett Karnak, is The Future We Choose. She is founding partner of the organization Global Optimism and co-hosts the podcast Outrage and Optimism. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Padre Gotuma, Gautam Shrikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Amy Chatelaine, Cameron Musar, Kayla Edwards, Tiffany Champion, Juliet Dallas Feeney, Vanessa Hale, and Andrea Prevost. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation, helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America, one creative act at a time. 
The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at Fetzer.org. Kalliopeia Foundation, dedicated to cultivating the connections between ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting initiatives and organizations that uphold sacred relationships with the living earth. Learn more at Kalliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.